Today's reading is from Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 31. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honour your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Good morning again. Last week, um, I began by showing you a clip. I'll just increase this a little bit. Showing you a clip of um, Paul Potts, who some of you probably knew about, some of you don't. Don't worry, as I just reposition myself a little bit here. Actually, I don't need that, do I? Um, A mobile phone salesman, who, if you were here, would have uh, heard... Um, won Britain's Got Talent in 2007 um, by singing opera. 
And of course, his performance was so totally unexpected by both judges and audience alike. And I likened it to the sort of experience that the disciples had on the Mount of Transfiguration. Only it was just Peter, James and John, Jesus in a circle. Um, that sort of experience being, um, to say it was unexpected would be probably an understatement uh, as such. It had not been their first unexpected experience, of course. Jesus had been doing things. I mean, it must have been pretty good when, um, you know, he saw um, a man being lowered down through the roof in chapter 2, paralysed from birth, and Jesus just said, get up and walk. That, that would have been pretty unexpected, I would have thought. Or when the disciples were in the boat in chapter 4, great storm arose, they think they're going to drown, Jesus sleeping in the back, saying, what's the problem? And just says, be quiet to the wind and the waves. So that wasn't the only experience uh, that they'd had that was unexpected. But you see, it was not only what Jesus did that was really unexpected. It was also what he said, what he taught, that nobody would have imagined that uh, he would say those things either totally unexpected totally countercultural to what was thought of at the time now we can easily see this already we've already seen this in mark so in chapter 8 when it came to that great crescendo point um, where uh, the disciples said came to that point where they said jesus says who's that i am and peter says you are the christ you are the messiah and then Jesus goes on to tell them he's going to suffer and die. Well, that, that's totally unexpected, friends, <laughs> as to what Peter thought. So much so that Peter rebukes Jesus, the one he says is the Messiah. And Jesus has to come back and say, get behind me, Satan. You've got no idea what you're on about. And just before our passage today, um, if we'd read before it, just see Jesus has some fairly radical teaching about marriage and divorce. Mark doesn't record the reaction of the disciples here. But in Matthew's account, if you were to read Matthew 19, the disciples are so taken aback by what Jesus says about marriage and divorce that they say, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. That is their reaction to Jesus' teaching. You see, it was not only what Jesus did but what he said, what he taught, that was totally unexpected and countercultural for his day. And the passage we come to today in Mark, the one we just read, that was just read for us by Sue, I think is one of the most important in that sort of vein. Jesus' teaching about how to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you've got one of your booklets, you'll see that the outline is there for you to follow along or add notes to if you want to. I've largely broken up the passage into what I think are the three movements of the story as we go along. First, there's knowing the way of entry into the kingdom in 13 to 16, then understanding the hindrances to entry, 17 to 25, and lastly, appreciating the benefits of entry. So first of all then, uh, we begin with knowing the way to enter in, yes, does work, good. Verses 13 to 16, I won't read it all. People were um, bringing uh, children, uh, most likely their infants here, um, to Jesus for a blessing. And the disciples want to stop them, prevent access to them. We're not told the reason why. 
Do they see the children as a distraction to Jesus? He's sort of an important person, you know, don't need any children hanging around. A distraction to his work? They're not, enough, not important enough to bother Jesus? Or do the disciples want to sort of be the gatekeepers of who comes to Jesus? You know, where, where the disciples will sort of determine who comes through our borders, if you like, to use a modern thing that we're having at the moment in our country. We're not told. Jesus, however, is indignant. That's strong language. He's indignant at the treatment of the children. But the real concern is not the children as such, I think, but their relationship to the kingdom. And the truly astounding thing for the disciples to hear, the utterly unexpected thing, is that the very children they are turning away are those to whom the kingdom belongs. Furthermore, Jesus states that unless one receives the kingdom like a child, you'll never enter it. The language, you'll never enter, it's very strong here. If we were talking in Aussie lingo, we might say there's no way in the world that you can enter it. That's how strong it is. To enter the kingdom, you have to come to Jesus like a child. Now, people sometimes assume that it's something about the character of children that's in focus here. Their innocence, naivety, spontaneity, humility, etc. But as one writer points out, as any parent knows, children can be just as demanding, stubborn and selfish, every bit as much as innocent, humble and those other things. I don't think it's so much the character of children that's in focus, but the way they come here in simple faith and trust. When Jesus says the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, I think he means to people like these, like children. People who come like children do, without any credits, without any claims, but people who are receiving God's gift of his amazing grace. Of course, the grace we've been singing about this morning, that we've just shared in communion, the grace that we see in Jesus' death on the cross, where the penalty for all human sin and rebellion is paid, so that the entrance into the kingdom of God might be offered simply as a gift. See, the parents of these young children were bringing them to Jesus to bless them, And that is, of course, what Jesus ends up doing in verse 16. His blessing is purely a gift. They don't earn it. They don't deserve it. They simply come to receive his gift. And so it is with the kingdom of God. Augustus, top lady, of course, expressed it well, if you know that old hymn, Rock of Ages, when he said, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply To the cross I cling. But as with any gift, it must be received. Otherwise, it's of no use to me, is it, if I don't receive it? It's somewhat like when you receive one of those cards in the letterbox from the postman. You know, they're about so big. That says, you know, you weren't home today, so there's something waiting for you at the post office. And we'll call it a gift. Sometimes it's not exactly that, but... But there's a gift waiting for you at the post office and you need to go and present the card to receive the gift. If you don't do that in a certain time, not sure what happens these days, either get sent back or thrown in the bin or something, 
um, there's a limited time with which you have to receive the gift. So it is, friends, with the kingdom of God. Anyone can come. Human beings are sinful, but we know that Jesus' death on the cross has paid the penalty for our sins. And so it's a gift. And it doesn't matter whether you're a child or an adult, very young, very old, black or white or somewhere in between, rich or homeless, smart or simple. But you need to receive the gift. And the equivalent of receiving uh, this gift for the kingdom, to use Jesus' words, is to repent and believe. That's why Jesus' first words in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, ah, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. He could have just said, receive the good news. Because that's what it means to receive, to repent and believe. The good news of God's amazing grace in the cross of Jesus. The gift of God's amazing grace is there, waiting to be received. The trouble is, so many people fail to receive it, don't they? Fail to repent and believe. Do you know that every time you share the gospel, you share the good news of Jesus with somebody, a neighbour, a friend, a workmate, school, uni, whatever, every time you do that, it's like God drops a card in the letterbox of that person. Gift waiting, that's what it says. Entrance into the kingdom, you just need to receive it. Why then doesn't everybody jump at the chance to receive God's gift? Well, because we find out that there are certain obstacles that hinder us from receiving God's gift. They are of our own making and we see them in the story that follows and why it does follow, I think, in Mark's Gospel. So we move from knowing the way to enter (coughs) to understanding the hindrances to entry. Now, the story, of course, is traditionally known as that of the rich young ruler. In verses 17 to 22, Mark initially gives no details at all about the man. It's only in verse 22 that we find out he had great wealth and it's only in Matthew and Luke's parallel accounts of the same instance uh, event that we find out that he's young and he's a ruler, hence rich young ruler uh, in tradition. He comes with a question about eternal life. Sorry, I went one too far. Um, What he must do to enter eternal life. In Mark, um, there are several expressions which are virtually equivalent. So, inheriting eternal life in verse 17, having treasure in heaven in verse 21, Jesus refers to, entering the kingdom of God in verse 23, being saved in verse 26, these are all essentially synonyms. See, for the same thing as Mark goes through. And this confirms uh, that the question about eternal life and entering the kingdom of God is primarily a question about what must be done now in order to enter then. 
Jesus has this focus on when he comes back, when he returns, because that is truly entering the kingdom for eternity and what must be done now. Now, the man shows great respect to Jesus here. He runs up to him, but he kneels before him and he addresses him as good teacher. Teachers frequent in Mark, but good teacher is unusual as an address. It's unusual here, but it's also unusual in the times. Very rare that we can find that in any literature of the times, that sort of address. It probably indicated that the man thought of himself as good, as the conversation will show, and that he addresses Jesus as another good man, but also as a teacher who can give him some assurance that his goodness will be sufficient to gain eternal life. So you see, the first great hindrance to entering the kingdom of God is relying on our goodness. So in verse uh, 18, Jesus begins his initial response by saying to the man, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And that might seem odd to us at first, since we know Jesus is God also, uh, God's son. might seem odd. However, I think Jesus is just speaking from a human position. He's taking the man's position up, the rich man's point of view, seeing Jesus as a very good human being. But Jesus exposes, friends, the fantasy of human goodness. The fantasy of human goodness. Only God is good. From God's point of view, there is no such thing as a good human being. None. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, friends, but none of you are good. I'm not good, you're not good, even Mike's not good, in case you haven't realised it. Sorry, Mike. Let me say it again. There is no such thing, from God's point of view, as a good human being. Now, human beings can do good things. I'm not saying that. In fact, some people do incredibly good things. But contrary to popular opinion, that does not make you good people. Why? Well, because God looks at the heart and not just the outward action and appearance. And he knows that when you see the heart, the heart that no one else sees, we are set in rebellion against our Creator. And our motives, for just about anything you can think of, are most of the time mixed and often self-centred. Yet we continue to go on with this fantasy and seem totally blind to its existence. Just over a week ago now, Muhammad Ali died. Um, From what are the terrible ravages, really, of Parkinson's disease. If you've seen some of the pictures of what he was and what he ended... Tributes, of course, have flowed in from everywhere, not just about his uh, boxing, but what a great human being he was. George Foreman, one of the people he actually beat up in a boxing ring, who became his great friend, said, he is the greatest human being he ever knew. I'm not sure whether that says more about George Foreman than Muhammad Ali, but anyway. But uh, yesterday, after his funeral... 
passed by. The Daily Mail, the Australian online version of one of England's main uh, tabloids, ran an article with this headline. You see, Ali was just a serial adulterer. He was married four times, leaving behind a legacy within his family of bitterness, jealousy and division. Now, I'm not trying to pick on Ali at all. What I'm trying to pick on is the blindness we have as human beings to our sin. The blindness that sees people proclaimed all the time as basically good. That our goods outweigh our bads. You know, not many of us would say we're perfect. But our goods outweigh our bads and surely that'll be enough to get us to heaven. You see, there's no hint here in this story that the rich man, his words were said in arrogance. He simply believes them to be true. All this I've done since I was a boy. He's not arrogant, friends. He's just blind. So Jesus sets out some of the commandments because, you know, in terms of Jewish um, theology and things like that, if you truly obeyed the law, then you'd live. And the man's confident that he has obeyed since he was a boy. And that shows his understanding, you see, and of his goodness and his obedience is entirely superficial and not at all a measure of the heart. A measure of the heart where, in Jesus' other teaching, he would, create, he would equate anger with murder, lust with adultery. Man, who ever thought that? Friends, we have to give up this idea that people are basically good. We've got to give it up. That may appear so outwardly. However, it is anything but inwardly. And one of the things you become aware of as a Christian when you do receive God's gift, and I'm sure many of you could testify this, you become even more aware of how acute your sinful nature actually is. It's the Spirit's way, I think, of helping us to appreciate how great God's gift of grace is in Christ. So one of the greatest, if not the greatest, single hindrance to coming to Jesus like a child and receiving the kingdom as a gift is the trust we have in our own goodness. And then that's followed by a second in receiving the kingdom, which, again, is pretty common to us, I think, and that's trusting in riches and possessions. In verse 21 and uh, 22, um, Jesus looks at the man, he loves him. You see, why did Jesus love him? Well, I think that indicates that the problem was that he was arrogant. Jesus looked at him and I think Jesus saw that he actually believed what he was saying was true. And he loved him because he knew he was simply blind. So he doesn't debate the man's confidence. He doesn't try to say, no, you're not. No, you haven't. 
let me list the things you've done. No, he hones in on the real problem, the problem of the heart. His trust in his wealth rather than in God. So Jesus asked him to sell everything he has, give it to the poor and follow him. The man, man's face fell. He's totally shocked at that. That's the last thing he expected Jesus to say. And so he went away sad. His confidence in his obedience to the commandments, you see, in the end is really a matter of outward appearance, not of the heart. Wealth had become his master, not God. And Jesus makes clear elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount that you can't have two masters. You can't serve both God and money. It's got to be one or the other. Now, so important is this for his disciples to know, not just the rich man, for his disciples to know that Jesus deliberately turns around and looks at them and says something that to them was utterly incredible. How hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, what he's saying is, if you're rich, it's humanly impossible to enter the kingdom. It's humanly impossible. That that this is what Jesus meant is confirmed by his illustration. It's easy for a rich man to go, like a camel, to go through the eye of a needle. Well, that's insane, isn't it? It's ridiculous. Then for a rich man to get into the kingdom. We're told the disciples are even more amazed, they're even more flabbergasted at that. You see, for the common belief amongst Jewish people was that wealth was a signal of the blessing of God. It was actually a signal of God's approval. If even the rich could not get in, and Peter says in verse 26, how can anybody... How can anybody be saved if that's the case? Now, it's not what we might say today, the way we might put it, but we must not reduce the impact of what he's saying. Friends, as part of the prosperous Western world, we are wealthy. And the simple truth is that when it comes to receiving the kingdom... We need to understand that wealth is toxic. Having wealth is toxic. It's extremely hazardous when it comes to faith and following Jesus. Money and possessions can easily easily deceive us into thinking they offer security and abundant life. Are we not bombarded with that message every day in just about every kind of media? you can think of. TV, online, junk mail. We're told to spend. It's good for the economy. And we're encouraged to do it all the time. And we can do it now, of course, because we can get 50 months interest free to you read the fine print. You see, it's utterly insidious. I don't know about you, but when I have some money over, you know, or I'm 
that I needed to decide whether to do with it. <coughs> I tell you what, the first thing I think of, and it's probably the second, the third, and the fourth thing I think of too. The first thing I think of is what I can buy. I rarely think of how I can give it away. Or who I could help. I have to work hard. I really do. I have to work hard at continuing to review the finances to make sure there's a balance. Always a balance between enjoying what God has provided and using what he's provided for the work of the gospel and the needs of others. I have to work hard at that all the time. In verse 27, Jesus says, at least encouragingly, that although it's impossible for us, if we're rich, to get in the kingdom, it's just too hard, temptation's too great. It's not impossible for God. Yes, by God's grace and the work of his spirit in us, one can trust in Jesus and have money. Some of Jesus' disciples, in fact, had money. But it will take prayer and vigilance if we are not to fall to its deception. Remember the parable of the sower? We did some weeks back now in Mark chapter 4. Some seed fell along the thorns, Jesus says, and got choked up. Jesus told the disciples that the seed represents people who hear the word but the worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things come in and choke the word and make it unfruitful. We cannot serve God on our own terms. It's an all or nothing thing. Even if we're not called to sell up everything, give to the poor or whatever, Friends, that's what we have to be prepared to do to follow Jesus. Well, having heard that Jesus said you can still uh, be saved and be rich, phew, I was worried about that for a while. Peter points out in verse 28, whoops, um, that in fact that is what the disciples have done. They have left everything as Jesus commanded and followed them. And this gives Jesus the opportunity to reassure Peter of the enormous benefits of throwing your lot in with Jesus, whatever the cost. And so I've called the third movement in this passage appreciating the benefits of entry. In verses 29 to 31, Jesus says that really you might have left everything, but you get far more than you need than you ever give up. It's not as if entering the kingdom doesn't have its rewards, it's just the opposite. Friends, God is no man's debtor. Not at all. Entering the kingdom reaps massive rewards, says Jesus, a hundredfold. Now, in this life and for eternity. The trouble is that so often we fail to appreciate them. In this life, receiving the kingdom brings abundant life and community life, abundant family and community now. Now, family in human terms, the way we normally understand it, is a matter of biology and birth, isn't it? 
who your family is. It's got a little more complicated now with IVF, blended families and some of the complications that occur in our lives. But you know, the kingdom of God is not a matter of biology and birth at all. It's a matter of faith. Faith in Jesus and the gift of the Spirit. Now, that outstrips by a country mile the family of birth or biology that we might give up for Jesus. The church, friends, is our family and will be our family for eternity. Local, here and universal, anywhere you might want to go around the world, forever. It's easy, I think, to fail to appreciate the wonder and the benefits of that. One of my daughters, you heard me mention the number three one, Jessica, about 10 years ago, we were just talking about uh, weddings. And at that stage, she was um, had been to quite a few weddings at her church, you know, big celebrations, that sort of thing, um, which she enjoyed. And then one day she got invited to a wedding um, of a work friend. Um, and she went along to that and expecting the same sort of thing, but, but hang on, this was much smaller. There's only a few friends, you know, and, and family and that sort of thing. And all of a sudden it came home to her, you see. Uh, the incredible thing of what it meant to belong to the church. She had countless brothers, sisters, mothers, countless homes that she spent time in uh, with them. Don't underestimate what it is uh, that God has created here. There's a massive unit I think today in our community or in our land for community, for a sense of community in our culture. The community of God's people for all its imperfections is a marvellous thing. So Jesus is right, absolutely right when he says, no one has given up family for me will fail to receive a hundredfold in this life. But it's not all a bed of roses, though, is it? In verse 30, Jesus adds those little three words. Having given the assurance abundantly, he says, along with persecution. Because the world is opposed to Jesus. If it is, then it'll be opposed to his people as well, his family as well. In fact, you know, the Apostle Paul was so straight out about this. He says in 2 Timothy 3.12, in fact... I think I've got that up there, actually. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everyone. You see, it's part of the territory of receiving the kingdom now. But the benefits, however, far outweigh the costs. And, of course, that, this is only the beginning. For what truly awaits us when we enter God's kingdom forever 
is eternal life and bliss to come. Where all the pain and problems of this life evaporate in the presence of the one who created us and who will sustain us with all the family of faith forever. So in this sophisticated age of confidence, of course, in human achievement and technology, uh, sometimes the, uh, the prospect of eternal life is like pie in the sky when you die to many. It's for the weak and those who need hope of something better to get through life. But I think that's merely to deny the obvious, friends, that eternity, eternity is built into human DNA. It's part of the fabric of what it means to be human. As Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 says, God has made everything beautiful. The key part comes next. God has also set eternity in the human heart. The idea and longing for something beyond death is inbuilt in it. It's in so many of our films. You go back to the film Ghost, you know, where you can communicate with your boyfriend or girlfriend or that sort of thing. The Lion King, here we are up in the stars, looking down at our funerals where we always say, now they can rest in peace. I hate to blow your bubble. Well, they've gone to a better place, have they? To the child who asks, where is grandma now? The most common answer is, looking down on you as you go. And you know, even the suicide bomber does what he or she does most of the time because they believe that giving up this life will actually bring them eternal life, reward and bliss. But Jesus makes clear what is almost so out of character to our human sinful culture. You can't buy eternal life. It doesn't matter how rich you are. You can't take it with you. Worse still, you can't even earn it. doesn't matter how good you are. You can't merit it. You can't be good enough to deserve it. That's impossible. Only condemnation and judgment is all we earn by that route. You can only receive the kingdom now in order to enter it for eternity. Don't be fooled, friends, in relying on your goodness putting our trust in what you have to bring life and security. When the day of entry comes into God's eternal kingdom, when he returns, Jesus says, there will be many who are first now. Good people, wealthy people, powerful people. But they'll be last then. In order that we may not fall prey, to the very hindrances that keep so many from receiving God's kingdom today, we as a faith family need to continually remind one another of the wonderful gift of God's grace in Christ. We need to encourage one another to appreciate the benefits of the kingdom that we share. Even now, but what is quite incredible. 
that we will share in the age to come. Let's pray.